Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I hope that you heard the last episode when I covered the most recent evidence-based guidelines on the safest way to return to training after a COVID infection. I heard from several people who did listen or who watched the video version of my discussion with Dr. Spencer Tomberg that I posted to YouTube that they found it helpful. I also heard from a handful of folks who have had COVID and have themselves been following those guidelines, but maybe are having difficulties, and they reached out to ask how they should proceed. Now, I want to take a moment to address this important question, because while I think that we did a good job in covering the evidence and the protocol for returning to training if all goes well, I kind of think that maybe we didn't do the best job of emphasizing what you should do in the, un, in the fortunately uncommon cases where things don't go the way that you hope. So let's say you are one of those people, or maybe you know someone who recently had COVID and took the suggested amount of time off and is now getting back to training in the manner that I described in the last episode. You, or they, are starting out at a low level of intensity and heart rate, and in trying to progress, rather than being able to, you find that the effort is harder than it should be, and your heart rate is persistently far higher than it was pre-COVID for the same effort, or maybe you're seeing spikes in heart rate whenever you begin to push yourself. Now, the published guideline doesn't actually address this situation. In fact, all that that guideline has to say about this kind of situation is that the athlete should take 24 hours to recover before trying again. However, I think we all know the reality is that 24 hours is unlikely to really help those people who are suffering through this kind of thing, though I do suggest that you try this if for no other reason that really more rest is never really a bad thing. But assuming that after that 24 hours, you or your friend is still in the same boat with a persistently elevated heart rate, then it is my strong recommendation that even in the absence of other symptoms like chest pain or palpitations, this should be assigned to seek further evaluation. That evaluation could be with a primary care physician, but honestly, a cardiologist is best, as a stress echocardiogram or some other kind of evaluation is probably the best way to suss this out. A common refrain that I hear from athletes who go to their primary care physician with complaints like this is that they are not well understood. And I completely get this. If you go to your doctor and tell him or her that you are having problems exercising for an hour, they're not going to be phased. That's because the vast majority of their patients probably don't exercise for 20 minutes in a week, never mind a day. So the concept that you are having issues exercising for an hour is going to be difficult for many PCPs to get their heads around. Similarly, if you tell them your resting heart rate is way higher than normal and they do an electrocardiogram and see that your resting heart rate is now 80, they're going to be very nonplussed because this is essentially normal for 99% of their patients. Never mind that this is maybe 20 or even 30 beats higher than your resting heart rate, which is really a problem. The best way to be heard and understood is to get in touch with a cardiologist in your area and use the following or similar kind of language. Quote, I am a very active and well-trained adult athlete who recently had a COVID infection, and since recovering, I'm having a lot of difficulty following the national guidelines on return to training because my heart rate is significantly higher than before I was ill, and I'm very concerned about the possibility of long COVID effects on my heart. 
Is there some way that I can get an evaluation in your practice for this? End quote. I like this language because it's succinct, it's to the point, and conveys a lot of very useful and important information that should convey the urgency of the matter. Now, obviously, if you are having chest pain, you should not be calling cardiology offices. You should be going to the emergency department. But assuming that you aren't, this is my advice for the best course of action to take. Uh, I'd love to hear from any of you who have had COVID and returned to training. How did things work for you? Did you have to get seen by a physician in order to be cleared? Did you have a prolonged recovery or was it relatively easy? Send me a note with your experiences at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. On the show today, I'm going to examine a medical device that I'm guessing few, if any of you, will have heard of, but is a shining example of so many of the things that I continually try to highlight when I review the scientific evidence on devices that are marketed to us as triathletes. OsteoStrong is marketed to middle-aged and older women, as well as to athletes, as a way of maintaining or increasing bone density to prevent osteoporosis and the complications that are associated with it. It is aggressively marketed as an easier and faster way than exercise to accomplish the same effects. It sounds too good to be true, which means, well, you know what it means. I'm going to take a look at OsteoStrong and use it as a reminder on how to assess the claims of products marketed specifically to triathletes, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by James Elvery, a former professional triathlete and entrepreneur from New Zealand who developed the Race Ranger, a product that has the potential to revolutionize the bike segment of triathlon in a way that no other technology has for years. I really enjoyed hearing about the development of this exciting tech and how it's being tested and when we might see it in real-world races, and that'll be coming up a little later on. Right now, though, I want to tell you about my newest Patreon supporter of the podcast, Cindy Wells. Cindy is just the latest of a growing number of listeners who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they wanted to help support this program, while at the same time getting access to all kinds of bonus content that is only available to my supporters. This includes bonus interviews with Laura Siddle, Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, and Dan Enfield, along with video talks by me on the science of tapering and off-season health and wellness. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks as always in advance, just for considering. Long-time listeners of this podcast will be familiar with a recurring theme to my medical segments. That is where I look at some product being marketed to athletes with aggressive co-opting of science to back up all manner of claims on how said product can make you train, race, or recover better than you would without it. Invariably, with scrutiny, the claims very rarely hold up, and the science being quoted is much more often an exercise in promotion than any true scientific exploration of benefits. Well, on today's medical segment, I'm going to take a look at a technology that is not specifically marketed to triathletes, but is nonetheless being aggressively marketed all the same, and provides a very useful illustration of all of the typical elements of a very questionable technology with over-the-top claims and dubious science to back it up. Osteoporosis is a significant burden for older women, who after menopause face a loss in bone density that if left unchecked can lead to fractures that can be debilitating and life-altering. 
The annual costs of managing osteoporosis, both for the drugs used to prevent bone loss and prevent complications, and for the treatment of fractures associated with the disease, is estimated at $16 billion in the United States alone. As the population is continuing to age, this number is only going to increase, and so you can understand why the prevention and treatment of bone loss is such an area of interest. There are several factors that influence whether or not a woman is likely to develop osteoporosis, and one of the most important is how healthy her bones are prior to menopause. Women who have a healthy diet, are more active, and have regular menstrual cycles are more likely to have healthier bones, such that when they reach menopause, their bones will be in the best possible shape to avoid significant mineral loss. However, there are many other factors at play, none of which are relevant to this conversation. I just want to point out that osteoporosis is a pretty complicated issue. After menopause, there are several things that women can do in order to maintain bone density. This includes remaining active, maintaining a healthy diet rich both in vitamin D and calcium, and in some cases, the reliance on pharmaceuticals that can stimulate further bone growth. Now, exercise has long been understood to promote bone density in premenopausal women and to prevent bone loss in postmenopausal women. The mechanism by which this happens is principally through loading bones with force, in other words, weight-bearing. When a weight-bearing force is expressed on a bone, it initiates a sequence of biochemical events that results in bone growth in younger women and bone stabilization in older ones. As you are no doubt well aware, exercise is still not something that a large part of the population, none of whom are listeners of this podcast, do enough of. And in some cases, other factors, generally related to more advanced age, can prevent women from being able to exercise as much as they want to or should, and that is where John Jackwish comes into this story. John Jackwish is a bioengineer and inventor with a PhD from a university that, by his own admission, has an accreditation that is not recognized in some jurisdictions. Jackwish is also the inventor of a system called OsteoStrong that claims to offer a solution to bone loss and indeed osteoporosis by utilizing a technology that he developed that provides short-duration osteoloading forces that he claims encourages bone growth and prevents fractures. Looking over the very slick OsteoStrong website raises a lot of red flags, and diving into some of the science on there highlighted a lot more. Now, if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you will recognize some typical themes to these red flags. Promising big results with minimal input by the individual. Statements that the product helps pretty much everyone, no matter what ails them. Claims of results that are significantly better than anything else on the market, and numerous statements of rigorous science to back everything up. For example, OsteoStrong is a system that promises pretty radical results with only minutes per week of use over long periods of time by any individual. Now, you as a triathlete or other endurance athlete are well aware that to get any kind of results worth mentioning, you need to put a lot more than seven minutes in effort in per day, never mind per week. So any device claiming to do things with such a tiny amount of input by a patient is probably going to be questionable. Although OsteoStrong is marketed principally to postmenopausal women with pre-existing or at risk for osteoporosis, the company tries to have a pretty big tent with inducements for diabetics, improving balance, and even for athletes. There is even a video in which Jackwish says, with a straight face I might add, that OsteoStrong is a perfect program for the worried well, 
specifically women who have nothing really wrong with them, but who might want to get out in front of things, well, they should use this program. When a product is promoted as being good for everyone, usually that means it's probably not that great for anyone. But let's look at what they say specifically about its use in athletes, because after all, this is a group that we're particularly interested in. On the page that is dedicated for athletes specifically, OsteoStrong claims to be beneficial for muscle strength. They provide no information or scientific rationale for this, but instead go on to say that by strengthening the skeleton, specifically the bones, through the use of the OsteoStrong program, this allows for women to exert their muscles more than they would if their bones were less strong. And they have a graph suggesting that by using OsteoStrong, women demonstrate 700% improvements in strength. So again, there is zero information on how this number was arrived at, how any of the science or specific experiments were conducted, and what led to this increase to get women to that phenomenal increase in strength. So pretty dubious claims and pretty dubious results. Finally, we have a page for the science behind OsteoStrong, and this is really where things came undone for me, and it's emblematic of the issues that I see on websites for so many other products that are marketed to triathletes. First off, the OsteoStrong folks are providing visual charts, suggesting that their product improves bone density by 14%. Now, this is twice as much as the best drugs out there, and five times as much as exercise and other non-pharmaceuticals. Now, I don't know about you, but if this kind of result was real, and so much better than everything else, don't you think you would have heard about it before now? Certainly, I would have expected OsteoStrong to be on the tip of the tongue of every physician and every postmenopausal woman out there because it's such earth-shattering stuff. This technology, after all, should have displaced pretty much everything else on the market if it was really this good. Since I haven't heard about it, and since it isn't that common knowledge, I'm kind of skeptical. So I started looking into the science that OsteoStrong puts on its website in support of their myriad claims, and a few things became apparent immediately. One, although they say that more than 150 articles have been done to support their product, in reality, of the 150 that they cite, only four of them actually looked at the OsteoStrong technique and the technology that it uses. Those four papers were all very small, all authored by Djokic himself, and none utilized control groups or were blinded or used any of the best scientific uh, experiment methodology that would give us the kinds of results that we could really believe and take to the bank. Furthermore, several of the studies were unpublished, which is to say they did not go through peer review or the kind of scrutiny that would give those papers the kind of backing that would support their results. There were a lot of other issues with those studies, and all of them lead me to question whether or not any of their findings are really valid in any sense of the word. So OsteoStrong is the latest in a long list of products that I have reviewed that are really just cash grabs that use science to try and validate themselves and take advantage of a population that are very much in need of something and who will not know enough to understand the poor quality of the science being used to promote it. Now, like I said earlier, this product is very similar to what we have seen in many different things that are marketed to triathletes, and you should always be watching for the similar traits and promotional materials that we see in OsteoStrong. 
These things promise huge benefits with minimal input by the individual who's going to get those benefits. They promise results that are far superior than anything else available and that seem way too good to be true. The science that is being suggested that backs up the claims is entirely produced by the makers of the product, has very small study populations that don't utilize controls, and often is unpublished. And finally, there's a lack of specificity as to what the product does and who it is good for. And so it seems that it's pretty much good for everyone and offers the kinds of results that benefit everyone and therefore suggest it's not going to benefit anyone. When you see these kinds of characteristics, they should be taken as warning flags that should make you slowly back away, return your credit card to its nice, safe, comfortable home in your wallet, and make you move along to the next website. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on this podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And I will definitely take it under consideration and perhaps you'll hear me answer it on the podcast sometime soon. We're well into the new year and the 2022 race season is rapidly approaching. You've heard me talk about triathlon camps before, but have you ever wondered about doing one? Well, this April, LifeSport Coaching will be hosting a multi-sport camp in beautiful St. George, Utah. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson and with coaches Juliet Hockman and myself, the TriDoc, you can get yourself ready by spending some time with other athletes in a beautiful setting, learning from some of the best coaches around. Along with the various clinics and talks on multi-sport training and racing, I'll be there to give talks on staying healthy and injury-free while training and racing at a high level. For more information, email me or visit my website, tridoccoaching.com, or the LifeSport Coaching website, lifesportcoaching.com, and click on the Camps menu where you can get more information and even sign up. Hope to see you there in St. George, Utah in just a couple of months. My guest on the podcast today is joining me from Wanaka in New Zealand. James Elvery is a former world triathlon elite level athlete. He competed around the world for New Zealand as a professional from 2002 to 2012, with world ranking in the 20s to 30s. But since retiring, James has returned home and settled into a more, quote, normal life, end quote, working at specialized bicycles and growing a family. Well, he joins me today to talk about his exciting new startup company called Race Ranger, which is developing an electronic solution to the problems of drafting in triathlon. James, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So I'm trying to remember how I came across uh, your product. I believe it was uh, in uh, somewhere in social media. I think DC Rainmaker might have uh, posted something about you. And uh, I immediately went and took a look at your website, which is very well done. And uh, I am fascinated. So tell me, first and foremost, tell us about what Race Ranger is, because I'm sure for a lot of people listening, this will be the first time they've heard about it. Sure. So Race Ranger is an electronic system, as you said, to sort of measure and police drafting better. So um, there's a sort of problem in the sport where uh, athletes are guessing what the drafting distance is and the referees are also guessing what that distance is and we're basically comparing our guesses and uh, leads to a lot of uncertainty. Um, so what we've developed is a system where there's uh, each athlete has two, two devices on their bike uh, before a race. So they're given two devices they put one on the front fork and one on the rear of their bike. And the rear one has a bike light, which points backwards. 
um, and it gives the following rider an indication as to how close they are. Uh, so it's making very accurate measurements of the distance between athletes um, and giving you a visual cue ahead of you on the bike uh, in front of you where you're already looking um, as to how close you're, you're getting. Um, and then secondarily, it uh, communicates with the referees. So referees are still on the course and they still make the decisions about the penalties. Um, they're just given more information. So the referees um, have a tablet in front of them mounted on the back of the motorbike driver in front of them. And they're shown information about just the worst offenders uh, within their area and where they're located. So they can then um, apply a penalty directly through the app or they can reposition the motorbike to get a better look at, at what's going on. So basically we're, we're taking out the guesswork out of the whole situation and, and making it a lot fairer. And uh, as an athlete, you should be a lot more, I guess, relaxed and enjoy enjoy your race a lot more as you won't sort of have to worry about um, is there a referee coming up behind me or am I drafting? I'm not really sure. I'm trying not to. All those kind of sort of issues that um, cause a lot of anxiety in the back of your mind for the whole day really as you ride around the course. Now, as a previous triathlete, I can imagine how the idea or the wanting to have something like this came to you, but, but what was the personal story of, of how the idea for something like this came around? Yeah, so when I was re- uh, sort of getting ready for a tire, I didn't really know what I was going to do, and I, I had met my current wife, my, you know, my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, in France, and I was in her apartment just sort of wasting time, not wanting to come back to New Zealand to get a real life, and... Um, we, I sort of spent all this time. I'd, I'd met uh, Felix, who was the um, CEO of Challenge at the time uh, in, uh, in Germany, and he was an amazing guy, and, and I got on really well with him, and I had this idea that I wanted to work for him. I was going to try and convince him to give me a job. So I, um, I did a whole lot of research on the size of the sport um, in, these, in my girlfriend's apartment, um, looking through all the race results for the past sort of five years for all Ironman events and long-distance races all around the world and made these massive Excel tables and big analysis and I, I ended up um you know convincing myself oh wow this sport's actually quite big and there's um you know some big companies operating in it and yeah it's worth sort of pursuing a career in the events industry in the sport um it didn't actually end up working out I didn't connect properly with the, the challenge people and, and ended up working there but I made it home and got a good job at Specialized and I'm still there now um but this excel file that I'd, I'd had sort of started a lot of things turning in my mind and um, my good friend Dylan McNeese, who's um, just retired as a professional athlete as well, him and I were bouncing ideas off each other, and he was complaining about this drafting thing. He was doing more long-distance racing than I was. And, um, yeah, we just sort of said, hey, someone's going to fix this with technology at some point. Um, if they do it, it's there's a, there's a bit of a business opportunity there. Uh, why don't we have a go at doing it? Uh, and that was late 2012, and sort of, it's a long, long time ago now. It's 10 years. We've <laughs> just ticked over 2022. So uh, it's sort of been a, an idea that turned into, oh, we should try this little technology. We found something that seemed to work but didn't end up working. Gave it up for a, a couple of years. Just was a hobby that we talk about over beers. Um, and got to the point where uh, about 2015, uh, we hadn't really done anything for about a year at that point. And a um, good friend of mine, Lauren Vidal, uh, passed away. He was a actually came fifth at the Olympic Games in, in London in triathlon, uh, French guy. So he, he had a heart problem and, and had a um, passed away that year. And a year after his passing, uh, the anniversary, um, my wife sort of said to me, hey, we need to, well, we were talking you know, back and forth, we need to do our own business of some sort. Um, 
working for other people is great, but um, if we want to really get ahead and have a comfortable life for our kids, we need to have our own business. And she sort of said to me, hey, what about this drafting thing you've always been talking about? What would Laurent do? Just bloody do it. He was the kind of guy who would you know, never leave any stone unturned and um, yeah, super hard worker and just really an inspirational guy. He had lived by that slogan, um, impossible is nothing, you know, anything's possible, like the Iron Man slogan. And um, yeah, so that just sort of lit a fire for me and I spent the next month and a half online uh, at night just um, trawling through uh, wireless radio forums and all sorts of electronic stuff and um, found this technology that seemed to look like it would work on paper. Um, and yeah, we that was start of 2017. Um, and we took it from there and, and took to some people who knew what they're doing. And it's been a, a long sort of R&D process from there, um, quite more intensively than, than previously. But it's um, yeah a lot of dead ends that we thought might work that didn't end up working. And um, if if you told me it would take would have taken this long, I, I would definitely not have continued on. But every step you take, it's always just a little little another little step, another little step, and you know another couple of thousand dollars here and there. Um, so it didn't seem uh, like we we're really doing anything too stupid at the time. But looking back, it's definitely taken a lot longer and and um, being quite a fully foolhardy uh, pursuit. But um, the result is hopefully coming to fruition now, and we're nearly there. So. Um, yeah. So, so where where are you at now? How far is it from being implemented and used? Yeah. So right now we have some um, devices being made and put together um, and being sent to us. Hopefully, arrive next week. Um, since we did the announcement in November, we've made a slight revision and made the front unit quite a bit thinner than than what you'll see on the website currently. So hopefully that'll uh, look a bit more aero and and um, but nicer for everyone. But that sort of delayed our production of our, of our prototypes by a month or so. So we're looking at a test event in February uh, here in Wanaka, actually, is a, a decent long-distance event, Challenge Wanaka. Um, and, um, yeah, we'll have uh, 16 athletes with the devices on them. And from there, we have enough components to build up to 50 athletes. Um, it's provided we don't need to make any major revisions. And, um, yeah, from there, it's really that, – that system will be a lights-only system, we're calling it. So it'll be um, – just giving the athletes the lights, it won't have the connection to the referees built in at that stage, but that's the a, a next development. Um, and then, yeah, really, it's um, we, we announced it in November. We're doing these trials through February, March, and then after that, we need to start having you know proper conversations with the event companies about how we scale it up from there to larger and larger numbers. So it, with 16 people testing it, you have to hope that those 16 people are going to be fairly close together in order for it to actually be a reasonable real-world test. So how will you get that to happen? Yeah, so the feedback we're looking for from the athletes is really just um, user experience feedback on how the lights work. We've actually set a couple of thresholds around when the lights come on and the signals change, and we want to get some validation on that. Um, to do actual, to get more meaningful data, we actually do some just private writing with our friends uh, in a group. Uh, you can actually manipulate a lot better and have a, a backpack on with a laptop connected and things like that. Um, but I guess going to those events is is a real, um, I guess it proves that we're real for the first time because we put all this press out in November and I guess a lot of people are a bit skeptical that it actually works and it does what it says it is. So uh, to show that there's a real thing and it's on bikes and it, it does what it says it, it should um, is, a, is a big thing about going to those events for us. So if it all goes well at uh, Challenge Wanaka, uh, what's the timeline? 
obviously best case scenario, if nothing goes wrong, when can I expect to show up to Kona, for example, or another big race and expect to see these handed out along with my number and my timing chip? I think for the pros, we could do, you know, we think starting with the pros is a good way to get acceptance and it's quite a manageable number as well. Um, We could be looking at the middle of next year, feasibly putting them on some races. Perhaps the referees and the athletes won't be 100% relying on the system, but they'll have extra information there and, and do some, you know, give some feedback. Um, for larger fields, it, it really depends on on how the events sort of, um, are, how receptive they are to the idea and, and the concept. Um, there's obviously a cost involved. So the athletes would have to um, pay a bit more in their entry fees or the event would have to absorb that cost. So there's those discussions to be had. Um, but in terms of, you know, if everything goes beautifully and, and we continue to find funding to be able to make more and more of them, um, you know, the 2023 season and sort of from April 2023 and the uh, European and North American summer, um, spring would be when we could probably start rolling it out. And these devices presumably are reusable, they rechargeable, reusable? Yes, so that's the idea. So we retain ownership of the devices and deliver the service just like a timing company. So timing company turns up with their timing chips, you get it in your pack, you give it back afterwards. Um, and the cost of that is passed on, you know, paid by the event, but it's part of your entry fee. And this is sort of the same model, a bit more involved in that, yeah, we've got batteries inside and, and all sorts of a few other things to worry about. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're wirelessly recharged. There's no USB ports or buttons or anything. It's just a solid piece of plastic that the athletes get uh, in their race back. They attach it themselves. Uh, they'll be checked at the entry to transition and to make sure it's all functional and matches your race number and things like that. Um, but yeah, we've tried to keep it as simple as possible and not, um, I guess, cause too much disruption or or change the way races flow operationally uh, from current in, in terms of the rules and the way that the companies run their events. What happens for, uh, so I ride a beam bike, uh, I ride a diamond that doesn't have a seat post. So how does the rear device attach in that scenario? Yeah, so there's there are bikes that it's going to be difficult to work through and these are things we need to address um i feel i see the the challenge of of that challenge being a lot smaller than what we've done the last five six years so um but it, yeah we've done a, a survey of a, an entire ironman event we walked the whole transition and found that uh sort of under five percent around three percent of bikes that'll have um issues should we say that need to we need to work through either it's um the athlete needs to be prepared to provide some real estate on the seat post mainly is the, the issue. And those those diamond bikes are, are quite a challenge, um, especially where you've got – as long as you've got a, you know, I don't know what it is in inches, but seven centimetres in, in height uh, available for this to mount on, so about the size of a normal bike light on your seat post, uh, you'll be fine. It's those situations where the seat is slammed onto the beam where it's probably going to be um, – got to get a bit creative. Um, we have – three or four different mount uh, profiles. So there's a mount piece and, a, and, a, and the device that the device slots into. And there's three or four of those depending on the different profiles of bikes. But uh, we may need to come up with a, a fifth one that's sort of a bit, even a bit more creative for the diamond bikes. And those very, very small bikes that have, um, you know, basically no seat post showing. Um, it's okay to mount the device anywhere on the seat tube, so it doesn't have to be on the post. It can be down on the frame a bit, just as long as the light can be seen from behind, so slightly above the, the top of the rear tire. I've seen, yeah, just on that last point, the beam bikes, um, and going forward, this might be an option is to leave a little bit of the post poking right through 
and mounted onto the bottom of that. Um, if it's a if you've got it slammed on the beam, um, which means you've you probably cut quite a bit of it down already. Yeah, but so many different bikes out there, and yeah, it's a we we chose the fork, and that's quite simple because um, yeah, they're all pretty Everyone's uniform. Everyone's got a fork. Well, there yeah. are some bikes now coming out with just you know one fork or even these yeah. whatever it was that thing that goes around the wheel. Uh, I think it's a quota or something or a cheapo. Yeah. Yeah. The cheapo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. But um, yeah. yeah, so many bikes. It's a, it's an ongoing challenge, but the earlier, you know, you enter an Ironman quite early and generally, and, and we'll put the information out well before the race that, Hey, this is going to be used at your race. Um, you'll need to fit this onto your bike. And if, you know, if there are any issues, we'll be at the race during the whole week. We'll have an expo booth there and you can come and we'll do it for you. We'll, we might even have to take some sort of, 3d printer or something to try and mock something up for special cases but we'll figure it out so i want to revisit uh just the way the the technology works because i i like i said i think at the beginning i i think this is amazing uh this is drafting is more and more of a problem especially in bigger races and uh as somebody who is constantly you know seeing this happen and just gets infuriated by it i I think anything that can be done to to try and diminish the uh impact that it has in a race uh, i think is great and to use technology to do that and and having seen your website and seen how it works uh i i think that this has real promise to actually make a real important impact and so i just want to revisit your description of how it works because then i want to ask you some questions about things that have come into my mind about how there might be uh, issues. And I'm sure you've thought about these as well. But um, just thinking back on what you've described and also on the video that I watched on your website, and uh, for my listeners, of course, I will have the link to Race Ranger, uh, which that's it, actually. It's just raceranger.com, but I'll have that link in the show notes. Uh, there's a really nice video that just sort of describes how uh, devices are on all the bikes, front and rear. Uh, a rider, as he appro- he or she approaches a rider in front, will see a flashing light on the rear of the bike. That light then starts to flash more quickly as you enter the draft zone. Um and uh, you uh, will come up on that rider, and as you pass them, the past rider will then get notification on their front fork uh, attachment that they've been passed, and they now have to fall back, and they have a certain amount of time to do that. That's not quite right. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's what I thought. I, I uh, thought I saw on that video. So, so what happens? Um, so once you've um, once you've been overtaken. You, yep. your your light has been flashing as the person behind you has been approaching. Oh, that's right. It's the rear light that changes. Yep. And then once Correct. they go past you, their light comes on on the back, and you now yep. have the same cue to drop back. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, it's the, the front light. The front light is a signal if you've been in the draft zone for too long. Mm, is that correct? The signal on your front fork is if you receive yep. a penalty. Okay. So, uh, drafting information is only from the bike in front of you. So you're where, okay. where you're already looking. We don't want you looking down away from your your the road ahead as much as possible. So just riding along, you approach someone in front of you. As you get within range of the drafting zone, light some lights come on. You you make a pass, and once you've passed, your lights on your back now come on for the rider okay. that you've just passed. Yeah. So the only thing the front fork does is to tell you if you've got a penalty. See, yeah. I think the front fork should tell you if you're in the draft zone too, because that way it could start chirping at you to get the hell back. Yeah. Or get or make the pass. 
So that's my that's my feedback. I haven't had that feedback yet. So <laughs> a product enhancement. Thanks. <laughs> because I think as somebody who's you know I've been told before I'll pass someone and a friend of mine you know he said oh I, I saw you in the race you passed me and you were you know pulling a whole bunch of people who were in your zone. If they had like some kind of thing chirping on their fork telling them they were in my draft zone, I would know as the person in front because I never know if someone's drafting behind me. Um, Anyways, the, the point of all of this is, is that it works, the devices work together. They signal a referee who can be anywhere within five kilometers of this happening, and the referee can then make a determination of whether or not a penalty is given. Um, so here are some of my questions about uh, some of the things that I thought of with this kind of operation. What about out and back uh, situations? Because on an out and back, it may appear as though the devices are, are not you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. So picking up, uh, say there's one group riding in one direction on one side yeah. of the road, another group the other direction. Yeah, so they discard each other basically. They recognize um, that there's some devices out there from a quite a, a large radius. And they they determine that they're coming from different directions and so they don't talk to each other. So that's, that's yeah, something we've okay. through. And you also mentioned uh, that uh, you would pre-map the course to remove certain areas from drafting. So, for example, if there's a no-pass zone where often people end up in close proximity in a single file, I assume a turnaround for an out and back would also be one of those areas where you would just turn that off. And so it, now when you turn that off, are you turning the devices off from each other or are you just turning them off from relaying to the referee? Just the relaying to the referee. So um, okay. the lights will still work. Athletes don't really need to know where those zones are. So a rational referee won't give you a penalty for the first few kilometers of the bike, um, aid stations, U-turns, steep hills, these kind of places. And as a referee, you don't want to be drawn to those areas um, because that's not something you want to look at. Uh, so they won't report a legal activity, we call it. Uh, so time over the allowed time to pass. Um, so they won't, yeah, they won't, they'll be pre-mapped and, and predetermined. Yeah. And I know you're scaling up, you're starting with a small group of 16, just sort of see how it goes and 50, and then you're going to work with the pro field. But when you go to one of these races that has, you know, 2000 participants, do you foresee potential issues? I mean, I know for me as a participant, I see issues just because drafting seems almost unavoidable in some of these races where there are so many people on a course that might be a two loop course. And therefore, when you put that many people into a small area, it becomes almost impossible to, to not draft at least even if you don't want to be. Uh, so I'm just curious, number one, when you have that many people with these devices, is there the potential for problems just because there's so many devices on the road and, you know, between them interacting with each other? And the second question is, um, is there the possibility for the referees being overloaded with so much information because of the nature of, you know, a smaller course with so many individuals? Yeah. So in terms of the devices getting overloaded when there's lots of athletes around, um, they'll work uh, up to if you're riding in a peloton, basically. So they can communicate with a very large number of athletes um but they don't they don't have a huge range they don't have a, a range beyond sort of 75 meters so there are only there's only so many riders you can get in that space uh, other than the transition area you can probably squash quite a few more together um so yeah definitely something that's taken us the five six years to work on um but definitely we've thought of that and it's not yeah it needs to be foolproof it can't fail in certain situations it has to work all the time um, so we've definitely thought, thought that through. Um, the second point was around. 
Actually, before I ask the second point, you just made me think of something else. Do, do the devices only get activated when they leave transition or are they activated when they're handed out? Yeah, so the current um, sort of programming that we've, we put into them is that they'll be in a sort of deep sleep. You you won't even know. You'll just be handed them. There's no lights that come on or anything. Uh, you have you know your normal two, three, maybe four days to attach them to your bike before the race, ride around as normal. Nothing will happen. Um They'll be scanned as you enter transition to just check that they're all functional. Last check. Um, once you so that they they know that you're in the transition area. Your bike. You know, once they enter transition area, they know that they're there, and they they then come out of a, a deep sleep uh, within a certain time range. So the race generally you know starts at eight a.m. between seven and nine a.m. If they're in that place at that time, they'll come out of their deep sleep. Uh, they won't. They won't all light up all of a sudden though. We don't want lots of lights in transition area. Um, they then, uh, once they exit transition area, so we basically put a pin, a, a GPS map point in the transition area. And once you're outside a certain radius of that point, they'll start operating unless you get into one of those Got non-police it. zones. Yep. Got it. And the second point of my question originally was, uh, for the referees, you know, I think about a course like Ironman Arizona or, uh, even Kona where it's really, you know, everybody's moving at the same pace. And so you've got just these huge packs that, that form up. I mean, you're going to have referees inundated with these potential penalties. Um, is there the possibility of just information overload in that? Case? Yeah. So the referees will only see the worst offenders. So they're not shown every little bit of drafting. Um, and that's, that sort of ties in with that overcrowded race situation where, um, yes, there are situations where it's impossible to avoid drafting. Um, and this will not completely fix that. It will probably highlight those situations more than they are currently. Um, we've seen events um, move from mass starts to you know basically wave starts to the new new way of operating now, and that's in response to this overcrowding issue. So they are recognising that it's a problem. Um, but having all these lights light up will probably highlight that further. Um, at the end of the day, those referees are only seeing sort of four or five worst offenders within their range at a moment in time. So that's something that we've sort of worked with World Triathlon on defining. What do the referees actually want to see? They don't want to see uh, that you took 30 seconds to pass rather than 25 for one in, one instance and I'll, I'll race to you and blow my whistle at you and give you a penalty. Um, they want to see people who are sitting there consistently behind one or two people for a long time. So the app will determine which are the worst offenders within their range and then they'll only show them those people. So if you're in those situations where it's crowded, you feel like you can't avoid the drafting, as long as you're at least sort of trying and you are not in the zone much of the time, um, you shouldn't show up in those worst five. Uh, so you should be okay. So, And really, at the end of the day, it's the referee's decision still. So it's a human decision. So we're just giving them more information. And if they they come up on you, if you do show up on their radar and they come up on you and, and see that hey, you're, you're trying to avoid drafting but you're struggling to because of the situation, rational referees can still make that decision that they won't give you a penalty as they can That's today. That's great. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the cost uh, and that this will obviously be shifted on to athletes. So can you give me a ballpark of what that's going to look like? <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah. listen, cost in triathlon is obviously yeah. th- that's a, a hot topic and it is not an inexpensive sport. So anything that's going to add to that, uh, people are going to be interested. I think this is definitely worthwhile technology and definitely worthwhile for better uh fairer racing but you know 
everybody's going to want to know, what are we talking? Are we talking an extra $100 per race? Or are we talking an extra $2 per race? So I think yep. people, and I, I understand you may not be able to give us a final answer, but if a ballpark would be nice. Yeah, so as I say, we can't put a final number on it yet because uh, components are really hard to get hold of at the moment. So we can't even get quotes for, you know, the 3,000 front and rear we'd need for one even one set. So uh, that, and we haven't had those proper discussions with the events as well. So it's not in stone, but, you know, it's going to be, you know, if you enter an Ironman at the moment, you've got your active fee at the end, and it's considerably less than that fee. Let's just say it that way. Well, that already is making my day. Yep. So there you go. And it, it, we, <laughs> you know, we're realistic. We're just a startup. We're two, you know, two guys who've never done this before, and it's our first sort of business together. And um, we we know it's it's not the next Garmin or whatever. Uh, so it has to be. It's a realistic price. That's um, has to be. You know, it can't make you decide not to do an event because it's so expensive. Um, but but there is quite a bit to it. There's there's four different technologies, communications in there, and battery, and you know lots gone into it. So um, yeah, it's not it's not unfortunately just the timing chip, which is basically just a piece of plastic with a wire coil through the middle. Um, yeah, to put it simply, but there's quite a bit more to it than that, unfortunately. But um, it's it's definitely has to be realistic, and um, we're, we're sort of going for the the half distance and the full distance races to start with because. Um, you're already you know paying quite a bit for that, so to add a little bit relatively uh, is not going to you know cause you not to enter. Whereas if you come down to sprint and Olympic, you, you're sort of taking up more of a portion of their total cost. So, yeah. very fair answer. And I think, uh, as I said, in order to have a fairer race, I think that you're not going to see a lot of resistance to that. And uh, I, I love this idea. I'm really excited to see it out there in the real world. And uh, I'm really excited to hear about how it all works out in Wanaka and going forward. James, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to join me uh, today to discuss Race Ranger. And uh, I will be eagerly anticipating uh, all of the news coming out of you guys uh, as uh, time goes forward and we see more re- real world results. Pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriTalk Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. If you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider on a future episode, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, where there's continuously added content, especially video segments of uh, different interviews that are done here on the podcast, including most recently the video of my interview with Dr. Spencer Tomberg talking about return to training after COVID from the last episode. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of joining Cindy Wells and many other in becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, please remember 1121 
and train hard, train healthy.